I wish to deal with how we reach a Catholic in the truth and love of Christ Jesus. And using two things in particular, the Bible, the word of truth, and using the Catholic official teachings in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And you would know the chart and you should have a copy of it, Thy Word is Truth, because on this chart we have the topics in the center, the main topics that need to be addressed if we are to evangelize Catholics and to give them the truth of the gospel. And we have the exact official word of God in the Bible text on the left-hand side of this page. And on the right-hand side we have the official modern word of the Catholic Church given under the last Pope, as he had Ratzinger, who is now the present Pope, compile this book that is official first-hand Catholic teaching. Now, a Catholic often has to know Catholic teaching to be freed from it. So if you're to evangelize Catholics, you've got to know your scripture and you've got to know Catholic teaching so that you can approach them with love, knowing what is in their mind and what is their mindset on these important topics. The very first one, the basis of truth. How do you know what is the final authority? What is the final measure? What is the yardstick by which you know truth? It is what Christ Jesus himself said. Scripture cannot be broken. This is the ultimate. This is the final authority that it is the written word, not hearsay, not tradition, what is handed down, but the scripture cannot be broken. That is the written word of God. And so Christ Jesus gives the ultimate and the measure of truth. And he emphasized it so much in the night before he died in his great high priestly prayer where he prayed to the Father, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What is he saying? There is an identity between the written word and truth. It's not simply that your Bible contains truth. It is truth. Thy word is truth. And the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter keep coming back to the authority of the word of God. The Apostle Peter says it's like a light in a dark place. And the Apostle Paul gives the commandment in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, that he might learn in us not to think above that which is written. We're not to think above that which is written. Again, the standard is the written word. And so we do not think above that. And that commandment was given also in the Old Testament that we weren't to add to God's word. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. Proverbs 30 and verse 6. And the Apostle Paul summarized the total sufficiency of Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for instruction, 
in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What more could you ask? It is totally sufficient for all things. And this is a difficult topic. Why? Because Christ Jesus was more than upset when the Pharisees, who were the leading religious authority of the day, when they expressed their love equally for tradition. He did not take it mildly. What did he do? He rebuked them to the face. He called them leaders of the blind, white sepulchres, very strong language. Why, in his own words, he said to them, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition which ye have delivered. They were making God's word of none effect. And so Christ Jesus withstood them to the face because if you take away the basis of truth, the whole foundation of salvation is gone. Because you do not have a certainty in God's word. You've added to God's word. And this is why it is utterly important. And this is utterly important as you approach a precious Catholic person, that you know these scriptures and many more. I have a whole paper on this, you'll find it on our internet webpage, where I go into far more of the scriptures. This is just a summary. But we have to find what does the Catholic Church say, what is the Catholic Church mindset. And it's given in this book, the Catholics of the Catholic Church. The paragraph numbers are the official way in which they quote from the Catechism, so that's the way we do it. We quote, first of all, from paragraph 80 of the Catechism, official words of the Catholic Church quotation, sacred tradition and sacred scripture, then are closely bound together and communicate one with another. They talk about sacred tradition and sacred scripture. And sacred tradition is put first in that paragraph. And somehow they say that these two things communicate with one another. Hold up any Bible, be it a Catholic Bible or any Bible, and see this as communicating with anything. It doesn't seem to be communicating whatsoever. It doesn't communicate. It's God's word once delivered to the saints. It is the final written word of God. But the Catholic Church see somehow that there's a, a correlationship between sacred tradition and sacred scripture. And they're going to explain that in the following paragraph, which we read, paragraph 81, and holy tradition, and the word holy is in the original, transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And so they say that holy tradition transmits. And while the Holy Spirit has mentioned the vehicle or means of transmission of the Word of God, the written Word of God is said to be holy tradition. And this is speaking against the Holy Spirit. Because in the Scripture, it is the Spirit, is the Spirit of truth. And He is the one holy man of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God as the Apostle Peter teaches. And 
It is the spirit of truth that has transmitted and uses the written word to convict of sin, righteousness and judgment. And we could go on with scripture after scripture to show it's the Holy Spirit's task and purpose to guide us into all truth. And so it's utterly serious to say that holy tradition is what transmits the written word of God. And their conclusion is obvious even before we get to it in paragraph 82, but we read the official word in paragraph 82. As a result, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scripture alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. You must have an equal love for tradition as you have for the written word of God. Now, how serious can you get when we know that the word of God expresses the mind of God? We have the very thoughts of God so we can think God's thoughts after him in the written word of God. And if we put anything on a level with that, we are taking from the glory of God and what he has given to us in his word. It's like a man saying to his wife, well, I love you, honey, and I have love and reverence for you, but it so happens that I have equal love and reverence for my secretary. Or what do you think of that man? How can you have equal love and reverence for your secretary that you have for your wife? There's nothing on a par with a man's love and commitment and vows to his wife. Nothing. There's nothing on that level. And equally, we cannot put anything on the level of our love for God and his written word. We cannot equate anything else. And to say that you love tradition is to say that you have an adulterous love for God. Because we cannot equate. Do you see how important it is to explain this? And to explain this to Catholics, many Catholics will say, well, I don't hold that. I, I really hold to the written word of God and that is my basis. And this is the starting point of evangelism. And in a certain sense, if this is not established when you're talking to a precious Catholic person, Nothing can be established. You've got to establish that it is the written word of God. And you've got to understand that their church is far clearer than any cult or than the Pharisees themselves. The cults always have you check your mind out at the door and have their traditions as well as the written word of God. But they don't say it as clearly as the Catholic Church does. The Catholic Church defines clearly that they have an equal love for tradition as they have. So, in that sense, it is quite easy to witness to Catholics because you have written out in short paragraphs that are like verses their teaching, and you can quote it to them. And for those of you who are on the internet, it is very easy to find many web pages that have the catechism whereby you can go and find the catechism. And I would urge you to pick up your own copy. You can get it in second-hand bookstores and you can find it uh, practically anywhere. It's very easy to purchase one 
And, of course, in the Catholic bookstore, you'll find it also. But it is very easy to get your own copy, so that you can show the Catholic what they officially hold. Now, how does Catholicism hold together? Because there's no absolute tradition. When you judge their documents and read their footnotes, you'll see that they're quoting from 35 volumes of Greek and Latin Fathers, another 35 volumes of the councils of the Church and the decrees of the popes and about 55 volumes of sayings and doings of saints, a massive amount of material that can be purported to be scripture, equal to scripture, their tradition. How do you, how do you, how do you think that the Catholic Church holds together? Because tradition is not defined. Even Sungenis, a leading Catholic apologist, writing to uphold the fact that the Catholic Church holds tradition, does not define what tradition is. Because you literally cannot define what is meant by tradition because it's so massive. And how does the Catholic Church hold together? They have an absolute, and the absolute is that they claim that their leading man, their pontiff, that is the supreme bridge maker or supreme mediator, is infallible. And that they teach in the same catechism. In paragraph 891, the supreme pontiff in virtue of his office possesses infallible teaching authority when as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful he proclaims with a definitive act that the doctrine of faith and morals is to be held as such. And so the Pope is claimed to be an errant that what he says on faith and morals now, interestingly enough, we had many popes that were heretics, and some condemned by other popes, and it's obviously true, just as an historical fact, that popes have been in error on doctrine. And once you know history, uh, you can show a Catholic that the uh, idea that we have an infallible man giving Inerrant truth and faith and morals is just an absurdity when you face history. I talked about the book by uh, Hassler, uh, How the Pope Became Infallible, a Roman Catholic Archbishop, a most interesting book. If you can get one of the copies that still remain, it has gone out of print, How the Pope Became Infallible by Hassler. and that's a Roman Catholic book explaining the absurdity of this from a historical point of view. Biblically, to hold infallibility is to hold that the attribute of God, where he is not only omnipresent, but that he is absolute truth, and that when he speaks his word is errand, that attribute of God is attributed to a human being. That God be true and every man a liar. Of human nature of itself is depraved, and no human being in what he says is inerrant. And this is really a blasphemy against God to hold that a man can be infallible. Now, if you can speak these things to a Catholic, and we have an innate love in many Catholics for the written word of God, 
And this is a real topic for evangelism, and it's the first topic. Now, there are things that take from it in modern-day America that we've got to be really aware of, and one I'll deal with later on more in detail. It's the whole question of idolatry and pictures of Christ, and uh, helps to understand Christ by means of videos. If uh, you hold to the fact that we're going to show somebody the Jesus video or uh, Jesus of Nazareth uh, or one of these videos so that they can understand Christ. The word of God is not sufficient. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And when you want to use uh, idolatry to communicate truths about God, you're taking from the written word of God. And we'll deal with that more uh, towards the end of this paper, but also the modern emphasis on psychology, where you, we have psychoanalysis and different uh, psychological counseling things in some churches that call themselves biblical churches, that utterly takes from the written word of God because it sets up another authority outside the written word of God by which people, to answer their moral problems, go to psychology, and that takes from. So in our evangelism, we've got to be very careful that we do not get, as it were, uh, we do not get watered down in this truth. We've got to give it precisely to the Catholic, that thy word is truth, God's word is truth, it is totally sufficient, and that... It is what God has given us, and we need no other authority. Salvation by grace alone. And this is the topic by which we come into how is a person right before an all-holy God. And that is the question I ask the Catholic, often coming out at the supermarket or at the bank or in any other place, the gas station, I'll ask somebody, what is your goal in life? And then, how, what is your goal before God? What is your purposes? And it's quite interesting. We meet very many Catholics. I would say probably in your city more than we have in Texas that you meet many Catholics. When the Lord said, go to the whole world, because of the immigration to the United States, we find in banks and supermarkets and gas stations practically the whole world, you know. It's, uh, so the command, go ye, means even in the express lane in the supermarket. If you have to witness the Catholics, many of them are at the checkout counter at the supermarket. And even in the express lane, go ye does not stop. It's, it's still a commandment, even if you're in the express lane. I have witnessed to a lady in an Albertsons, and I saw her convicted and come to biblical faith, and another man in a pharmacy, and in airplanes, and in every place. We meet Catholics everywhere, and others who do not know the Lord. So I urge you, come to this idea of grace in everyday life, and every day, at your hairdresser, or wherever you go, or the UPS man comes to your door, or whatever. It's grace we've got to talk about, and that's what it says in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For men and women dead in trespasses and sins, what is the message? It is that our God is gracious, because the redemption, the price for our sin, 
And the bringing in of everlasting righteousness is already paid through the redemption. Christ Jesus has lived the perfect life and paid the perfect sacrifice. The redemption has been accomplished. And how is it given freely by his grace? It is the graciousness of God so loved the world. And this is the message we give, that it's the act of God to save it is, shows his graciousness. It shows who God is. We are explaining to the world the manifest love of God. But now the righteousness of God is manifest, as the Apostle Paul said. We have an expression of the grace of God. And that's most glorious. And that's where we've got to light up with a love and a joy that we're sharing who God is with a precious Catholic person. And we know this verse, and we know the following by heart. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We do not pull our Bible out at the supermarket. We say it by, by memory. Because God uses the written word to convict people. And it is by memory that we have these things on our lips to communicate. And it is in Titus, in the words of Titus, uh, not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And in Romans 5, speaks about the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness by one Jesus Christ, the gift of righteousness, again, who our God is. And the Apostle Paul says so clearly, I do not frustrate the grace of God for righteousness come by the law, Christ be dead in vain. If it's some other way by our works or our rituals or our ceremonies, then it's as if Christ had died in vain. This is so serious that grace is magnified. And this is what we explain. Now, what is in the Catholic mind? What is in the Catholic mind when you speak about grace? They use the word grace and they give a definition of it in paragraph 2021. Quotation, grace is the help God gives us to respond to our vocation of becoming his adopted sons. It introduces us into the intimacy of the Trinitarian life. Grace is demoted to being a mere tool or a help. It's not who our God is in himself. It's a help given to which you can respond. So it presupposes you have something good enough by which you can respond. There's at least, least a spark of goodness in you. So there is a denial of biblical truth in this very definition. It presupposes that you're good enough to respond, and grace is demoted to being merely a help, just as a man would use a black and decker power drill as a help, or a woman would use an iron to, you know, iron the clothes, or a frying pan to fry the eggs. These are helps. Our God's grace is not a help. It is who our God is. It's the abundance, the riches of grace. It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It is who our God is. It's not merely a help or a tool that anybody uses. This is who our God is. To justify unholy sinners. And so the Catholics use the word, but it becomes more definitive as they go on in their teaching. Paragraph 1129 
This so-called grace comes through seven physical signs called sacraments. The Church affirms that for believers the sacraments of the New Covenant are necessary for salvation. Sacramental grace is the grace of the Holy Spirit and given by Christ, given by Christ and proper to each sacrament. The sacraments of the New Covenant are necessary. And so, without New Covenant sacraments, you cannot be saved. Without the physical seven sacraments of Rome, a person cannot be saved. And this is really horrendous because it's saying that a person depends on seven physical rituals called sacraments to which to be saved. And it says the most blasphemous statement that could ever be said by a human being. Sacramental grace is the grace of the Holy Spirit. The power that is purportedly comes out of these seven sacraments is said to be the grace of the Holy Spirit. Why is that so serious? Because in Scripture the unforgivable sin is to speak against the Holy Spirit in particular. And this is speaking against the power of the divine Holy Spirit who convicts of sin, who leads us into all truth. And to say that your power in your sacrament is Holy Spirit power is the most serious blasphemy that could be uttered by any person or any institute in the world. And this is utterly horrendous. This was officially said in 1994 as this catechism was published in English, 1992. It was published in Latin and early on in French. But it is interesting, it's about the same time or nearly the exact same time that the Boston Globe um, began to expose the scandals in the Catholic Church and the uh, Dallas uh, morning news and many other newspapers across the United States and across the world that the inner heart of Romanism was exposed in the scandals. Was it as if God could not take this final blasphemy that was written in this way in this book? That God will not be mocked? That you cannot speak against the Holy Spirit and try and get away with it? Because this is the ultimate sin. And to say that your power is Holy Spirit power. So that as a priest, when I said, I absolve you from all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that that was Holy Spirit power. It used to grieve me when I saw people come back week after week with the same sins. Because I knew that this was not delivering. And to say that that was Holy Spirit power is utter blasphemy. And this is where we've got to try to pray for kindness to say these things to Catholics because we're speaking exactly against the Holy Spirit of God, which is the most serious sin to hold that salvation is through physical things. Many Catholics, like when I was on the radio station, 
Uh, and a lady called and said, I only believe in the shed blood of Christ. She said, I'm a Catholic. And I said, great, because that's where salvation is. But I said, officially, your church does not teach that. I said, paragraph 119029, and I quoted this to her. And we've got to show that to precious Catholics, because many precious Catholics want to trust Christ's shed blood alone on his work on the cross. And so delicately, knowing their mind, we give the gospel. I praise God that even with the false ecumenism, we have more saved Catholics than any other group that calls itself Christian and is not Christian. And I praise God it is by, particularly by daily witnessing. I believe in and do door-to-door witnessing, but I think it's daily witnessing of men and women by which we will see a real multitude saved, and this is what I urge you to do as you reach out to Catholics. Faith is the means, the the way that God uses. It's a given gift of God that comes through the Word, and the object of faith is what? It's the person of Christ Jesus. And so it, the Apostle Paul said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved, thou and thy house. What is the object? Christ, believe on him. And it is a God given, but it on but unto you it is given on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him but also to suffer for his sake. It is given to you. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing the word of God. It is God given. And you think that could not be clearer. And many Catholics want to hold that, they want to trust on Christ. And this is where you have everything going for you when you approach a Catholic. But you've got to understand what is in their mind, what is their official teaching, what do they focus in on. Paragraph 168, it is the church that believes first and so bears and nourishes and sustains my faith. Holy Mother Church believes first before the individual person. And then the following paragraph says, Salvation comes from God alone, but because we receive the life of faith through the church, she is our mother. So they see the church as the mother that is going to give you faith. So your faith is now going to be based on the mother church. And that they define this even clearer in paragraph 181. Believing is an ecclesial act. That means it's a church act. Believing is an ecclesial act. The church's faith precedes, engenders, supports, and nourishes our faith. The church is the mother of all believers. No one can have God as father who doesn't have the church as mother. Engenders, that is to give life to. The church gives life to your faith. It precedes, nourishes, and supports your faith. And so you believe in Holy Mother, and she's the one who gives you faith. And that's where the Catholic is trapped. You've got to believe what Holy Mother says and what the Pope says. And you end up by believing in a system and not in a person. And that is utterly serious because it says officially no one can have God as father who does not have the church as mother. So you cannot know God as your father if you do not know the church that is the Catholic church as your mother. 
Now, how horrendous can you get? And how much can you put a person on the wrong trail, believing in a mother church rather than believing in a person? And this is the easiest one for witnessing, because Catholics want to believe in the person of Christ. And so what I say at the supermarket, or wherever I am, I say, I'm not talking about any church. No church saves. It is the person. And the Catholic will listen to that. So I'm not talking about church. I'm talking about how we are right before a holy God. We are right before a holy God by trusting on a person. There's no institute, no church saves. It is the person of Christ Jesus. And this really disarms and brings brings back the central message that we are proclaiming that salvation is by God through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And I would urge you to have this on the tip of your tongue and on the top of your heart that I ask God to give you love to reach out to precious Catholic people who are all around you. You know, you meet them, I witness the people at bus stops and queues, you know, and uh, usually in the United States have no trouble at queues. I found difficulty in Toronto and some places in Canada where people are more cold, but, you know, you, you talk to people everywhere, and you meet them everywhere, and you give them the gospel, and you point them to the person, trust on the Lord Jesus, and thou shalt be saved. And that is easy to give, and it is dynamic because the power of God comes through the Word of God. And God does not send angels, He sends you to give the Word. And we pray for a love that we are not remiss. In Acts chapter 8, when the apostles remained, it was the people went out and evangelized. It's the people of God that evangelized. And you are the people of God. And we proclaim a person to believe on. The finished work of Christ Jesus is the whole price of salvation. And Christ Jesus himself said it is finished. To tell us die, the work was done absolutely perfect, legally finished on the cross. Christ declared it finished. And seven times... The one sacrifice is spoken of as being one offered. I give an example in Hebrews 10, 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down at the right hand of God. When he had by himself purged the sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. Nobody else helped him. It was by himself. How more clear can you get? One sacrifice, one offered. Catholic Church is a different concept. Reading from paragraph 1367, in this divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in a non-bloody manner. So while they say once, they say he is offered. As a priest, I would say at, at the Mass in Eucharistic prayer number three, so I accept this victim and I point down to the bread and wine which we said had become the body and blood asking God to accept the victim because we were offering sacrifice pray brethren that my sacrifice and yours be acceptable to God the almighty father 
Again and again I said that as a priest. We were offering sacrifice. Is offered. Present tense. The Bible only knows past tense. Was offered. And this is as serious as you can get because if you take away the finished work of Christ Jesus you take away redemption and why the priest must have the figure of Christ on the cross behind him at the mass it's a mortal sin for priest says mass without the figure of Christ hanging on the cross behind him because that's what's central in their mind that he is offered he was offered it is the finished work now, approach this delicately. Don't talk to Catholics about this topic unless you feel the Holy Spirit is, is urging you because it's so sensitive. And many times it's better just to talk about the scripture and faith and grace and leave it to the person saved before you approach this topic because it's so delicate. When people used to talk to me about this and I used to say it's like a razor blade across my eye. I took glory in the fact we were offering Christ and I was offering my sacrifices with him. And many Catholics glory in this because it continues. Read the following paragraph. The Eucharist is also the sacrifice of the church, which is the body of Christ. The church, which is the body of Christ, participates in the offering of her head. With him, she herself is offered whole and entire. So the man, Jesus, has the woman offering herself with him. So her sufferings are offered with his sufferings in the Mass. It's not simply Christ's sufferings, it's the sufferings of the nuns and the priests and all holy men and women who are offering their sacrifices with Christ. And this is really a dramatic portrayal of the works gospel. This is what God condemns in scripture. In some Catholic churches when I was in Poland in the year 2003, uh, I was told there, and I haven't seen with my own eyes, but I know it's true that there are, there are churches where we have a woman hanging at the back of the church, at the back of the crucifix, and that's the woman, the church. In Guatemala City, you can go there and the main cathedral has Christ on the crucifix and the woman on the reverse side. Now, people who are not Catholics would say, well, that's Mary. It's not Mary. That's Mother Church. Mother Church suffering with Christ. And particularly in the Mass. This is as Contrary to the word of God as you can get, because it was by himself. There's no other holy, righteous, undefiled, separate from sinners, higher than the heavens, the qualifications of Christ. And we bring that out. And this is really, really difficult. And I urge you not to witness on this, to know it. And maybe discipling a Catholic after they get saved you address this topic. Turning the page, we come to the, the key attribute of who God is. We know God's the spirit is eternal, unchangeable, and is being wisdom, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I presume you all know that Spurgeon's definition number four in Spurgeon's Shorter Catechism. Uh, who God is a spirit infinitely eternal, unchangeable, and is being wisdom, 
understanding holiness, justice, good, and goodness, and truth. But the most important of those attributes is holiness. Why? Because it's the only thing that is said three times in Scripture. When something is really important, it's said twice. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Lord will say. Something is said twice when it's really to be highlighted. But the only attribute of God and the only thing that is mentioned three times is the attribute of God's holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Three times. Because this is the key factor of who God is. He is the All-Holy One. The only All-Holy One. And so scripture could say, Revelation chapter 15 verse 4, Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, and all nations shall come and worship before thee. Because God is holy, his truth is holy, his love is holy, his whole essence is holy, because he's utterly separate from sin and perfect in himself, there's none holy as the Lord. This is the utter characteristic, and it's the characteristic why we need to be saved. And that's why I said in your question at the gas station, at the supermarket, at the hairdresser, is to ask somebody what is the goal in life and then what is your goal before the all-holy God. And that's what is the key question. I do not ask you to ask the question when evangelism explosion says that if you were to die today and appear before God, what would you say to get into his heaven? Why? Because the emphasis there is on how can you be happy in the next life. The emphasis is on you, on the person. It's not on who God is. And when we witness, we've got to be true to the scriptures. And when we witness, we emphasize the character of God, not our happiness. And so, you can say, if you die tonight and appear before God, but that's two ifs. Why not put in the present tense? How do you now stand before the all-holy God? That's the question to ask people. And that's the question that really brings out the gospel because it can only be answered with the true gospel. And the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, 2 says, There is none holy as the Lord, there is none besides thee, neither is any rock like our God. There is none like unto God. I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory, I will not give to another, neither my praises to graven images. He does not share this essential glory with anyone, because this is who he is. Now the Catholic Church does speak about God being the All-Holy One, but they speak also about another one being the All-Holy One, and this is what is utterly blasphemous. In paragraph 2677, they say these official words. By asking Mary to pray for us, we acknowledge ourselves to be poor sinners, and we address ourselves to the Mother of Mercy, the All-Holy One. The capital letters are in the original. It's the definite article. It doesn't say a All-Holy One, it says the All-Holy One. There's no disclaimer, no footnote to say we do not mean this exactly as it is written. You cannot get any more blasphemous than that. 
And this is very difficult. I used this with a young Catholic boy who was demonstrating outside John MacArthur's church and we had a conference there in 1969 and um, I thought it was 79 and um, he was horrified and he said, my church does not say that. I had this paper and then I had the book myself so I opened up the book and he read it and he was horrified. He was in shock, and later on he came in and counseled with John MacArthur, and as far as we could see, that young man got saved. My church does not say that. Now, I still don't recommend it in evangelism because it's too strong, because Catholics are devoted to Mary, the prayers are many to Mary. It's only if the Holy Spirit leads you that you would use this in evangelism. This is really high-powered hardball evangelism and do not go in there unless God leads you. It is too strong. Catholics can be horrified and still try to defend their church. So know it, know what's in their minds and when they come out of Catholicism how to disciple them but it is a real delicate topic while it's so clear we do not use it except the Holy Spirit of God leads us to use it. The Catholic Church goes further than what they said in paragraph 2030. From the Church, he that is the baptized Catholic learns the example of holiness and recognizes its model and source in the All-Holy Virgin Mary. The source of holiness is said to be a human person. Now God is the source of First of all, justification, sanctification, and glorification. He is the only one who brings in everlasting righteousness. And to say that there's any human being is utterly to speak against God and utterly to have another cause of salvation. And which is in actual fact what they do in this next topic, one mediator, they say that Mary has a role in salvation, taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. So she continues to bring gifts of salvation. Therefore the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of Advocate, Helper, Benefactress and Mediatrix. Mary is to be seen as the cause of salvation an mediatrix. What is a mediatrix? It's the feminine of mediator. So we have Christ as mediator, but you have a second one, Mary as mediator. And this is quite clear because the scripture says, First Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now this is the simplest of all mathematics. One means one, not two. And if you say that you have two, and one is a feminine, a mediatrix, as well as a mediator, you're denying the scripture. Now so Spirit of God leads you, this is a topic that you can come into, because Catholics will want to hold up as one mediator and they'll know that text and they'll know the text in Acts 4.12 neither is any 
salvation any other there's none other name under heaven given among men by which they must be saved and Christ Jesus says I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to Father except from me we know that there's only one way so this is a topic where the Lord can lead you and you can explain to a precious Catholic person that there's one and one means one and it never is added to idolatry is probably the most important topic of all of these when it comes to evangelism because we have in modern day evangelical circles a compromise whereby Catholicism is coming in as it were by the back door let us read first of all what the truth of the word of God says thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image nor any likeness of anything thou shalt not bow down thyself to them or serve them the likeness of anything what does that commandment mean it is explained in Deuteronomy 4 from verse 13 and he declared unto you his covenant which he commanded you to perform even ten commandments and he wrote them upon two tables of stone take ye therefore good heed unto yourself for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, a similitude of any figure. What is forbidden is the similitude of any figure of the divine. The God's word is explicit. God is not against art. He's against artwork of Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. We do not make any artwork of the divine. And that in history up to the 8th century, the iconoclastic century, was clear in the early believers. It was clear the Reformation with the exception of the Lutherans and the Vaudois, the Bordenses and others in church history have always seen we do not make pictures of Christ. Modern day evangelicals have compromised on this. Campus Crusade under Bill Bright not only recognized Catholics as brothers and sisters in Christ and works together with the Catholic Church, but has produced the Jesus video, which has done horrendous harm. I saw in Portugal when I was invited there to Warsaw in 2003, I heard reports from different Baptist churches and other Bible-believing churches how devastated they were by the false ecumenism of Campus Crusade and the Jesus video in Polish because it was purporting that Christ can be known through idolatry. You don't have a stationary Christ on the cross, but it moves. And somehow idolatry moving is not the same as idolatry stationary. It's the same thing. We do not portray Christ. And the message given as you to look into the eyes of the so-called Jesus, who is not Jesus, is to commit your life or dedicate yourself to him, which is not the gospel message. It is not committing yourself or giving yourself to Jesus. It is the gift of God. It's the totally the opposite way. It's not accepting Jesus in your heart. It's totally opposite. It's to be accepted in him. Ephesians 1.6 And so we get a wrong gospel message and the use of idolatry. And this is utterly serious. It has come into many Bible-believing churches. There are many I think of all the independent Baptist churches I've been in, there's been no compromise, but in some of the others I've seen compromise, where we'll have flannel graphs and uh, children's Bibles with pictures of Jesus on the cover and that sort of thing. This is where the Catholics can make the inroads. 
And if we are to understand biblical truth, we do not compromise. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing the word of God. It is sufficient. And if we are, we're not holding to the sufficiency, we need phanographs, we need pictures of Christ, and then you bring in pictures of the Father, with Adam be touched by the Father's hand from the Sistine Chapel and other pictures of the Father, and then you can end up with TBNs, replicas of the Holy Spirit. Other idolatries follow us if the Jesus movie and other such things come in. This is utterly serious. We cannot evangelize using what God hates. I give on the other side how the Catholic Church tries to uphold it. I ask you that you read that for yourself. I don't have time to read it, but they say it's not contrary that you go through the image to the prototype. That's what Aaron did. He said, let's have a feast to the God of Israel. He was going through the golden calf to the God of Israel. That's what God hates. We do not go through any medium. The written word is sufficient. The last topic you would have to read both sides for yourself. Catholic Church talks about communion with the dead. Why we're trying to have the last Pope made a saint is that people can commune with him and pray to him. The last Pope, John Paul II. He made more people saints than any other Pope in history, more than all previous Popes together, so people could commune with the dead. We do not commune with anybody except God. <laughs> we only pray to God. It's quite simple. And really approach Catholics on that. It is a really evangelistic topic. We praise God for his words, and may we go forth in that word and see many Catholics saved. To the glory of God's name. Amen and amen. Praise God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.